91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on November 21st, 2016 and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel and Jonathan joined me to discuss the 2016 election's ongoing aftermath and start to discuss what we do from here. It's Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from WVUD.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. And joining us on the line from Idaho is Rachel again. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So last week, if folks missed the episode of Arsenal for Democracy, you can get that at arsenalfordemocracy.com or on iTunes. Um, And that was an episode where I was interviewing uh, Emily Robinson, who is a uh, socialist organizer both in uh, Virginia slash D.C. area as well as in Scotland uh, with the Labor Party. And um, obviously, like, she definitely takes a more pessimistic view than even I do. And I have a fairly pessimistic view at this point. Um, But, you know, she's you can hear us discussing sort of things about what went wrong in the election, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, uh, I think we're in a different place with regard to the democratic party than say she is, which is that even when the democratic party completely beefs it, it's still the only real available machinery for electoral politics. Although I'm a very firm advocate for increasing non-electoral politics. And we can talk a little bit more about that as we go forward this hour. There's a lot of indications that unionism is going to be increasingly illegal in this country. (laughs) And that means that we're going to probably end up seeing a lot more like sort of unauthorized syndicalism activities um, like you have in Mexico, say. Anyway, I figured that we would talk this week um, not as much about what went wrong, although we can talk a little bit about that. Because a lot of the discussion last week was sort of mostly tactical issues more than anything else. But we can also talk about what comes next, I guess. Although it's a little difficult for us to have this conversation because like Jonathan and I are in Massachusetts, which while obviously not overwhelmingly Democratic, certainly did vote for Clinton for president and has overwhelming Democratic majorities in the legislature. Yeah, which barely changed. Yeah, there are there are issues in Massachusetts to be sure, but they are different issues from the rest of the country like we're not talking about trying to recapture 
legislatures. And then uh, Rachel is in Idaho, which is kind of the opposite direction. <laughs> so it's a long term battle uh, before, you know, getting getting back to any, you know, serious Democratic uh, viability outside of, you know, a few places like Boise. So it's going to be an interesting conversation because if we're looking at like, you know, what do Democrats need to do nationally? That's a different conversation, I guess, than what we're talking about locally. But um, anyway, that's sort of where what I'm thinking we'll be talking about uh, this hour. Uh, certainly, I am not happy, as I was not happy last week, by the number of people <laughs> who are not really seeming to get any appropriate lessons out of what just happened. There's uh, some people that are saying, oh, come on, guys, we need to stop fighting. We need to have a united front against this Trump administration. But I have to say... I'm not really seeing much evidence of the, uh, you know, liberal Clinton diehard faction really wanting to work on that either. They they definitely seem more interested in punching leftward and refusing to own up for any possibility of having made errors uh, than any sort of discussion of what is coming out of the Trump administration, other than occasionally complaining about him appointing Nazis or whatever, which that's like a fair thing to complain about. <laughs> and, and I think we all are. But to suggest that that is the only thing is a mistake because I still believe very strongly that despite all the horrible things that will emanate directly from the White House under Trump uh, or, or from Trump Tower, as the case may be, I think the bigger problem is still going to be that the former or soon to be former head of the Republican National Committee will be the White House Chief of Staff under a Republican Senate majority and a Republican House majority under Paul Ryan. Um, some people have suggested that maybe Paul Ryan's not going to be the speaker or that he's going to be held hostage by the Tea Party Caucus. I don't think that's really the case. I think it's a very different situation for the Tea Party types, the Freedom Caucus or whoever to be holding their own party hostage when they are not in control of all the branches of government. At that point, you are you are being a, a purist to the point of not getting anything done on your own extreme agenda. Like, you could get 90% of what you wanted done, and uh, I don't think they're going to hold out for that last 10% in the way that they were trying to when it was an abstract concept. It's a very different matter to be endlessly proposing things that aren't going to get passed, you know, anyway, and trying to, like, purify those. Um, but I, I still, like... I still am very concerned with what is going to be coming out of Congress. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure they'll be slamming through various bad executive decisions and things like that. But uh, I, I think that the like the announcement of, you know, essentially voucherizing Medicare, mm -hmm. um, you know, hints that we may get a national right to work law. Uh, Ron Johnson talking about pushing through a massive, quote unquote, civil service reform package, which is basically breaking the federal public employee unions. Um, I think we're going to be seeing a tremendous number of uh, very damaging uh, pieces of legislation. So I I'm keen to keep the focus on that uh, and also be fighting these battles at the state level wherever possible in a place like Massachusetts. But it's not like we can count on Idaho to make a vigorous Tenth Amendment defense of progressive values. <laughs> No. <laughs> so, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at on that. It's definitely difficult to like, not just be wildly pessimistic about everything right now. I, I can say one of my only hopes for opti one of my only grounds for optimism is the belief that toxic personal relations can doom legislative agendas. But like, <laughs> I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Trump would veto things out of pure spite. Not like I'm banking on that happening. <laughs> It's not out of the realm of possibility. 
The other thing is the fact that just like it was very difficult for Democrats to weaken the filibuster back when they were in control because of, of like the old guard and the party, those who had served since like the 80s and were very loath to do it. There are still a handful of Republicans of like the, the ones who've been like people like Lamar, Lamar Alexander, who've been there. I believe he's been there since the 80s, um, who are who are hesitant about eliminating the filibuster in part because they don't actually want to get a whole lot of stuff done. If they, if they do eliminate the filibuster, it's kind of basically screwed. If they, if they keep, if they keep it in place, it does make it more difficult for them to pass the worst of the bills they would have. Although any bill, any like year end appropriations bill, it would still be filled with a bunch of toxic writers because you could, and and generally say like defunding of valuable programs and services because you could probably get enough Democrats to still sign on. Well, they're also saying that because they didn't pass a budget last time, Mm -hmm. that they now have the opportunity to pass two budgets within one calendar year. um, And those are subject to reconciliation once per year, except it's actually once per budget. Yeah. So they're saying that they're going to use reconciliation, which means 50 votes or 51 votes needed rather than a 50 plus one. Right. But it's it's that they don't need they don't need to get a super majority. Yeah. uh, To override a filibuster for that. So I suspect we're going to see some very damaging stuff slammed through within the first several weeks of after Trump takes office. The the biggest risk that you'd have in terms of things that would go by largely in a kind of stealth fashion that wouldn't necessarily attract as much media attention as other issues, but that just by, by their very nature only require a simple majority is repealing regulate is congressional repeal regulations. Because I was just reading an article earlier today that notes that because kind of there's one law in the books that Congress can via simple majorities repeal any president like kind of presidential executive orders within like 60 days hmm. after they're issued. And that like definition of 60 days, I think is like 60 legislative, kind of like well, mushy presumably, about what exactly Presumably exactly they're means. not going to be reaching back to 2009 to be Well, yeah, so they can't stuff. go that yeah. far. But like the late, kind of the late issued things. So anything that he puts through at the last second. Yeah, so like anything like, so Congress is likely to go out of session, I think on December 9th. So it's going to be the stuff that's happened over the past few months that Congress would basically take it as though like anything that's like within the last 60 days of this that they could interpret it that they they can just override on simple majorities. And that's something that like I think that the overtime protect like kind of the yeah. overtime protection like labor executive order recently things like that which like CNN's not going to be covering that intensely. Well, CNN's not covering anything intensely. <laughs> Rachel, I want to go to you uh, before we get too much further into this. What are your feelings right now uh, with regard to the election and also uh, looking ahead? I guess I'm more optimistic than you guys are. I know Idaho was one of the few states that if only millennials were allowed to vote would still be red. But I'm seeing in my cohort group, uh, I am seeing more energy leftward. So I think there is that kind of fire under our butts that we kind of needed to get things started. So I'm starting to become more active in my community. I am going to try to help build up the Idaho Democratic Party as sad and and weak and frail as it is. And I think a lot of um, my peers are in the same boat. So I, I actually... I guess there's nowhere to go but up for us. <laughs> so we're going to try to do that. I think that's the case in many states. Here's a quick yeah. question on that. So I, so I have a friend, um, uh, Kathleen Friedel. I don't know if that's actually pronounced her last name. I apologize if I've mispronounced Kathleen's last name. But she was going to be a friend of mine who was working on looking at like the 
kind of the strength of state parties and to see like which state parties actually write their own platforms because not all of them do. Does the, out of curiosity, does the Idaho Democratic Party actually write its own platform independent of the national one? Hmm. Uh, I don't actually know that. I think so, but I'll have to, I'll have to do more research. I just, I'm on the email list, but that's basically my level of involvement right now. And I will get more involved in the future. So I'll find that out, definitely. It's an interesting thing because there are a number of states that just don't even bother to do anything. They just adopt the national platform and like have no real institutional purpose as an organization. (laughs) Well, as I always say, people should not hesitate in red states, especially to get involved with their Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is always legally privileged over many of the other parties. Mm Uh, along with the Republican Party. And if it's a deep red state where everyone is demoralized and has given up and, you know, you go into the office and it's got a dusty picture of LBJ or whatever, and that's the (laughs) last time they've updated it, right? Like, you know, that you can you can essentially walk in and take over for the most Mm -hmm. part. I mean, there's going to be obviously areas where they're full because they that's the Democratic pocket and they have enough people recruited or whatever. But generally, they're looking for people who are going to be active members who are going to volunteer for stuff who are going to get involved. So last week, as I said, we were interviewing Democratic Socialists of America, you can be in DSA and be in the Democratic Party. Um, So we were interviewing Emily a little bit about that. But uh, another fellow from uh, DSA, uh, Indiana, was asking me questions the conversation there so this this uh this person was they were not in indianapolis or someplace like that they were in a pretty red area uh within indiana you know the the conversation that we had was essentially you know definitely join up get involved they're looking for young you know activist members that kind of thing you don't necessarily want to break out the marks on day one. Like you don't need to be, you don't need to analyze everything openly through a Marxian dialectic or whatever and tell everyone that's what you're doing. You can just like skip the theory part as long as you know what it is and just come up with the conclusions and say, this is, you know, X, Y, and Z things that we should be fighting for, right? These companies that are, you know, shipping the jobs out unfairly, you know, taking advantage of essentially neo-colonialist capital structures that allow for like cheaper labor that's you know deeply undervalued that sort of thing that's an unfair competitive pressure um you can talk about you know the wealthy people making all the money off these companies you know with the worker wages not going up um despite productivity increases these are conversations that you can be having that have like real policy organizing Mm -hmm. things again you don't need to be talking about like Karl Marx or Lenin or anything like that. You can just like say you can end with the populist economic conclusions and probably get a lot of people on board with you. And then you can go out and try to get some of these people who maybe have been disenfranchised by the system. It might not be a good idea to start your democratic platform part like platform writing with full communism. Right. (laughs) Hashtag goals. (laughs) (laughs) Um you know, because I, I am not a socialist. I certainly see, like, the importance of ha- being familiar with, like, sort of original socialist thought and, like, the ways of thinking about how the economy works and how mm-hmm. societies are organized. Um, but even if you are a socialist, I would just say, like, you know, as long as you know what the theory is, you don't mm-hmm. need to walk in the door and go theory 101 on everyone, like, right off the bat. Nobody cares. Um, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> Americans don't care. You you want to get to the conclusion stuff, um, and 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 you know I think there's sometimes some people are a little bit too much like putting emphasis on the like 
well, I need everyone to know that I'm a socialist or whatever. And it's just like, um, I don't know, maybe just sell people on the end goal or whatever without going through the whole explanation of how you got there. Um, and, and, you know, that I think that leads into the topic as well about sort of messaging and appeals and like who we're appealing to. Um, this came up a little bit last week as well, but basically I don't want to be there. There's some people who have taken the incorrect conclusion that like, oh, the Democratic Party was too focused on um, civil rights, essentially. Yeah. Right. Which is Why not the Democratic that is not party care about trans people. Yeah. And it's like that's not the conclusion to take yeah, away. No. no, it's it's you need to you need to have other things in there as well, because the way that uh, politics and coalition building works is you give various constituencies mm-hmm. stuff that is relevant to them. And obviously, many things overlap multiple constituencies, yeah. and that is how you build coalitions. But you do not just focus on, you know, okay, this, you know, th- we're going to work on this that's going to benefit these people, and then also not give. And, and that's not an issue. Like, I, I want to be very clear here. That's not in no way diminishing the importance of those fights. They're absolutely critical. It's a question of saying, okay, we also need to remember that there were, that there are other constituencies that are part of the democratic party that we need to make sure they have something that they're really fired up about, uh, to come out and vote. Um, both ends. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not like, I'm also not that interested in winning over the Trump voters. That's been a conversation, especially on the left that some people have had. And that's something that we talked a little bit more last week about. Um, I am of the mind that if you come up with a platform that happens to get some Trump people, you know, they're not like committed Republicans and they're sort of like casual anti-establishment Trump people or whatever. And they're also not committed racists. Um, If they happen to come vote for you because they like your platform, that's fine. I'm not going to go out of my way to go get them because as you've been saying, they're obviously comfortable or not caring enough like they don't yeah they don't care that he you know that he ran on this like racist platform so they're at the very least they don't have a problem with it and that's an issue but you look at the just the huge turnout drops in so many areas and that doesn't completely explain some of the results but in a lot of states it it really does trump did not improve significantly if at all over the numbers in most places that romney yeah. or mccain got and we won against both of those candidates. So that indicates that there's a turnout problem more than yeah. anything else. And so I am, I am more interested in what coalition building do we need to do uh, among people who did show up this time and people who did not show up, but have showed up previously for Democrats in the past or people who haven't shown up. It really or yeah. Or people. All. Yeah. That's um, yeah. Because the unfortunate thing is that's a very large share of the share of the population. Yeah. One of the things that I've been concerned about for a number of years, but not really had a good way to articulate it, and I was concerned even while I was doing my own campaign, but I couldn't, in in the process of doing it, could not figure out how to, like, get out of that cycle, essentially. You know, there was a lot of innovative technology stuff going on in the 2008 campaign with Obama. Uh, I think some Democrats got too focused into that to the point where they a lost the messaging you know forest for the trees situation um that definitely happened with clinton this time having a campaign manager who was a field person right yeah. like you just you if, you if you have a field person that's running the whole thing they ha- they may have a tendency it turns out to forget that they needed to have a unified national mm-hmm. message 
and they may just sort of like drift into segmented, you know, algorithms or whatever. Yeah. That's not great. But the other thing too is that if your whole thing is based off of likely voters mm-hmm. and and filtering by people who vote, you will get an increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller yeah. sample of people. And now look, some people are just not going to come out to vote. Like you know, there was when I accidentally knocked on the wrong door in one town during my campaign, you know, because I thought I was going to somebody who always votes. And it turns out I was going to someone who almost never votes or only <laughs> votes in the general election. He was just like, um, well, no, I don't think I'm going to vote in September. And I was like, well, hey, I'm the candidate at your door. Like, there's my <laughs> deal. Do you want to maybe come out and vote for me? No, not no. really. You know, so there's some people that are going to be like that. Right. And you can't do anything about that. But there is a tendency, I think, to just like only go to the, you know, small percentage of doors where the people definitely always vote at the expense of forgetting that there are these people who may not even be registered and therefore aren't in the mm-hmm. system at all. You know, like if someone's not registered, they're not going to be in your voter access network. You know, they're not in your vote builder. They're not in your nation builder or whatever. Yeah, because like one thing that I often, I've often thought about with that is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of in the way that you end up creating that you're like, well, we need X number of votes to win. So you end up knowing that you have a smaller electorate for certain things. You think about how many votes do you need to win within the, the expected small electorate. And so then you're not really going to be focusing as much as expanding the size of it, right. which is a very important thing to do. And it's something that needs to be done outside of the campaign cycle. It can't just be like campaigns can help energize people to do that work, but the Democratic Party, like, for instance, does need to invest in really long-term efforts to be constantly registering people year-round, or making it just easier to do, as some states have, have taken to doing, places like Oregon and California. I don't know, I, uh, I don't know what the future is going to hold for that, though, because, you know, the one of the things, the rumors that was coming out today was that they're probably planning to try to amend the National uh, Voter, whatever it's called, Act from 1993, commonly known as the Motor Voter Law. Yeah. Basically, instead of... So so Social Democrats wanted to push for uh, expanding that law, changing it from an opt-in provision when you're getting your driver's license and you can register to vote into an opt-out so you are automatically registered unless you opt out. It appears that the Republicans from the administration in Kansas, we'll call it, uh, mm-hmm. who are the polar opposite of social Democrats in every way imaginable yeah. and have really uh, pushed very hard to purge voters. Um, they are saying that they want to, uh, if they get into the Trump administration, they want to roll back that legislation from 1993 and probably take away the opt-in at all. Would um, that be constitutionally like kind of viable to like ban states from doing that? I mean, I'm no, I'm guessing that they can. I'm guessing that like an individual state could continue to do yeah, it. Yeah, but it, but like the but, yeah, because yeah, it was a provision that said that federally, like all states had to have that, have that as an yeah. option. Yeah, um, and as you mentioned, you know, Oregon has an opt out at this point, and yes. that would probably remain in place. Yeah, um, but we're looking at a situation again where Democrats do not control very many legislatures yeah. or governorships, so it's going to be difficult to you know, patchwork that through. Similarly, if they're like, well, we're going to end the federal level right to abortion. And then Donald Trump saying, well, you can just travel to another state because we're not going to ban it. Like state, it's going to be a state's rights issue. 
well, that does, that's not actually a viable plan yeah. for many people. It's going to get rolled back in a lot of states if that happens, and there's not going to be a lot of, like, there's not going to be a lot of states that can expand the protections at the state yeah. level. Um, yeah. well, one just quick thing to follow up on, the issue of just in, of kind of registering voters, expanding the electorate, etc., is one statistic that I've been re- reading before that that's very interesting. I can't give the exact numbers, but the U.S., the U.S. has a has a decent, like a comparable to European standards, uh, turnout based on registration. So people who are registered are very likely to vote. The problem is that the U.S. has very low rates of registration. I don't know though. I think this one was not that high. I mean, there are the the interesting thing though is that there are certain states that are that are yeah, at some states levels, are high. Yeah, right. Well, that and that's even just yeah because. Probably I mean, yeah, like Wisconsin, Wisconsin, which had a significant decline in part due to voter ID laws, but also in part due to, you know, lack of campaigning there. Uh, Wisconsin, well, didn't it, it, it was, it, yeah, it, well, it declined in certain areas yeah, and then it, was, yeah, and then, it was comp- yeah, it declined in black areas yeah. and then was offset yeah, by was like composition. rural and exurban areas yeah. that are overwhelmingly it, white that, it that went came like up, but three. I think the turnout in the whole state went fell by about a hundred by like a little under a hundred thousand, which is not insignificant. Yeah, no, yeah, I think so it like was a ninety thousand yeah, so decline it's... or something like that. But it was concentrated very heavily exactly. in like Milwaukee uh, County. But as, my as point, well my point was that even with that decline, yeah. they had one of the highest turnouts yeah. as a percentage of you know registered voters. And that is true also of like Minnesota. Minnesota. That tends to be, you know, 87% turnout or whatever, which is very similar to say you get like 87% of voters voting in the French presidential election. And then, well, everyone pretty much votes there, but then it'll be 87 cast of, you know, ballots for a candidate and the remainder voted abstain, Um, which I think it would be also worthwhile. I've said this before. I think it would be worthwhile to introduce none of the above options more widely in the United Which States. It's, it's, yeah, Nevada has it. It's it's very unusual. Um, I think that that would potentially get some more people to show up to, and like, you can say, oh, well, that's pointless. Like, what's the point? But it's, I think it is probably productive to show that people are engaged enough to be frustrated with all the candidates available. Yeah, the, um, the one time I think yeah. that, that Noda actually had a decent showing, um, the 2012 Senate race, and it, it was a, like, not like high, but like high by the standards of the none of the above vote, uh, mainly because the reason that Democrats didn't win that seat in 2012 was because of the kind of ethics issues surrounding Shelley Berkeley, the Democratic candidate, um, as well as the fact that Sheldon Adelson had made it his life's mission to destroy her political career. Um, so you have some of a flawed candidate and somebody with ridiculously large sums of money hell bent on destroying her chan- any chance of her like improving her odds but like i that you could see that like there was a clear diff like she underperformed obama significantly and i think a lot of that were people voting none of the above you're listening to arsenal for democracy i'm your host bill humphrey joining me again in studio is jonathan Cohn. joining us on the line from idaho is rachel on our episode the week before the election, Rachel covered at uh, great length and in-depth issues of voter suppression and disenfranchisement pushed by Republicans in battleground states all around the country. Rachel, I think it's interesting, though, that you were, you know, to go back to what you were saying, that you were commenting on the uh, optimism issue. I, I appreciate and admire that you're optimistic. I'm just hoping you could elaborate further on that, as I am not personally that optimistic. I mean, just looking at what we're staring down the barrel of. Uh, at the federal level and also at the states, 
um, and particularly on the climate change angle. It, it is difficult for me to find a lot to be optimistic about, although I am continuing to attempt to march forward. Um, I guess my optimism is on the hyper-local level. <laughs> so when you factor in those things like climate change, then it, it, it can be uh, quite daunting. Um, but I think uh, this year is going to be like the ninth or tenth year for add the words Idaho, where we're trying to add sexual orientation and gender identity to our equal rights law. Um, so I think that has a good chance because there are all these energized young people now who are angry about this election. And I think, I think if we get the turnout, we can actually maybe change some hearts and minds on that. But yeah, definitely probably on the national level, I'm not, I'm not as optimistic as I am on this, like, very hyper-local <laughs> uh, topic. I think that raises an interesting point, though, which goes back to what we were talking about with regard to civil rights and the emphasis on that, um, you know, because you're mentioning, you know, that's an issue that's mobilizing young people in Idaho. Mm -hmm. I think there is, like, you know, one reason that I am anxious to make sure that we continue to push for these things as Democrats is that that is something that it does not just mobilize those people, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the, whatever group is affected by a particular yeah. provision, it tends to mobilize a lot of younger people as well. Maybe not even most young people, but an activist core yeah. that will then show up mm -hmm. to volunteer for stuff. I certainly, you know, got people involved with democratic candidates um, when we were pushing for marriage equality mm -hmm. in Delaware and we needed to get, you know, certain legislators elected to do that. Um, but by the same token, like there are other young people that that's not going to like, they're not opposed to it, certainly, but that's not right. the thing that gets them to the polls or whatever. I'm still really grappling with this fact, especially in Massachusetts, where, in my opinion, much of the party is controlled by older members, mm -hmm. um, that there is, is still an unwillingness to say, like, look, you you have to offer every constituency in the Democratic Party yeah. things to get them to vote. You cannot just say that like this is a horrible candidate that we have to vote yeah. against you have to show up you cannot demand that. and and the you know you get even people who are you know late 30s have been parroting some of these talking points too um not specifically in massachusetts necessarily but just this this ongoing repeated assumption of like well you should have come out to vote well okay everyone should come out to vote ideally i wouldn't even be beyond putting you know some sort of a compulsory type of yeah. voting in place as long as you made it easy to vote and gave people a none of the above mm -hmm. option. Uh, that being said, it is, it is naive to think that that is how politics works. Yeah. And I, you know, this is something that I've been talking about so much in the context of like the European union um, and, and this technocracy concept. It's something I've written about a lot at arsenalfordemocracy.com, which is like there, there's this, there's this elite level push by some of the people who are most involved with governance on the sort of left of center or centrist, you know, part of the spectrum of saying politics is distasteful. I don't want to have anything to do with it. You should all know that this is the right thing. Like the, these are the correct policies mm -hmm. and you should come out to support them. And if you do not come out to support them, that is your fault. And we should have fewer elections, you know, and, and, like just constantly blaming the electorate for how things turn out or backlashes, 
you know, you get this backlash in Europe of people saying, I feel like the government doesn't respond to me. I feel like we're controlled by unelected bureaucrats. And then their, their tendency is we should hold fewer elections and we should transfer more powers to unelected bureaucrats. <laughs> and then, you know, but no, there is no policy agenda that is neutrally and technically mm -hmm. correct. All things have some ideological component. Yeah. And you can complain about the ill effects of ideology, but you have to sell policies to people. You have to campaign for things. You have to campaign to turn out every vote and to turn out various, you know, demographic mm -hmm. blocks that are going to, you know, vote relatively similarly, which you can never paint with a broad brush. But like if you choose to denigrate goals that are appealing to younger people, you cannot be that surprised if younger people do not show up at the rates you were hoping that they would show up. Granted, I think young people did show up relatively well in this. I don't know how bad it was. I haven't seen the statistics. So the, uh, but the mere fact that it hasn't been blamed that heavily on young people, <laughs> I think, indicates although, that it must not have gone down that much. I mean, it must have been somewhat. It, it, but in, yeah. some in some cases, they did. I think it, it's probably going to be a state-by-state -state issue, as with anything. I know in Wisconsin, it really did go down. Yeah, um, well, that was also they were trying to discourage exactly. So voting. it's like, yeah, because yeah. it's like, like a state like Wisconsin. It's you're gonna have it like with Wisconsin, which saw a decline in the black vote, particularly in Milwaukee, and saw the so like turnout statewide went down like a little bit, but the composition changed significantly because young voters. I forget the determination of this. This is like in a Journal Sentinel uh, piece I was reading that there had been twenty one percent of the twenty twelve electorate, and then seventeen percent this year, which is a significant drop, which equates to somewhere like, which would equate to about like 120 to 140,000 votes. So that, you know, yeah, that could make the difference. So maybe I spoke too soon on that, yeah. but, but, but yeah, but with that, it's going to be a mix of like Wisconsin where they don't want to, where the state has actively tried to prevent students from voting. So it's a mix of that. It's a mix of dampened enthusiasm. But yeah. But like things like the zero college tuition plan, there was a failure. I got to be blunt. It was an, it was a very significant failure to treat that as a serious proposal, which it was, it was not giving everyone free college. It was saying yeah. that state universities <laughs> would have zero tuition. There would still be various fees and things probably, but it would be zero tuition. There was a revenue plan to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Even if, you know, whether or not that's necessary, there was a plan to pay for it. It was not that expensive of a proposal. And it is something that was essentially the case in many states as recently as 30 or 40 yeah. years ago. And other countries provide this. This was not a outlandish proposal. It was denigrated massively by Democratic elites, by many Democratic commentators, you know, or Democratic aligned pundits. This is not an appropriate response. You don't say, no, that's a stupid policy yeah. and you're all naive and immature and then wonder why people did not come out to vote for your candidates. You can say until the cows come home, Donald Trump is a horrible monster and you should have come out to vote against him. Yeah. But it is inappropriate to say, well, these are the constituencies that we will offer things mm -hmm. to. These are mm -hmm. the constituencies that we will demand show up to the polls. You cannot say, oh, we will, we will completely pander to, you know, paranoid shut-ins over the age of 80 in exurbs that think that, you know, the ISIS, uh, the ISIS black people are coming for them or whatever. <laughs> and then, and then say, but we don't have to offer anything to young people. Right. You know, and 
they didn't even talk about the fact, I have not seen one word mentioned in all this discussion of, oh, the Affordable Care Act is going to be repealed, of the fact that part of the Affordable Care Act included student loan yeah. reforms. Okay. Those are, I think oh, yeah, those that are, that, that, that was part of reconciliation in order to come up with the budget mm -hmm. excuse to, you know, get away with not using the filibuster. They had to change the, you know, federal student loan procedures. And I would imagine that that's going to get rolled back. I cannot imagine the Republicans not taking the opportunity to say, hey, predatory lenders, welcome back to the student lending industry. This is a massive problem where student loan debt is the largest source of debt in this country by like actual dollar amount other than home mortgages, which is a different ballgame. Yeah. You know, you, you have this huge pile of debt that is completely changing consumer patterns, completely changing long-term investment patterns for millennials, things like starting a family, buying a home. There is this tremendous drag on the economy that is only going to get worse. And the response to this was, no, we don't have to give you anything. We're going to give you and some free college is yeah, racist. Yeah. Or, or, or saying that free tuition is racist or what, like all kinds of absurd proposals, you know, or lack of proposals, just absurd rhetoric surrounding this. You cannot say, uh, well, you should have come out to vote when you did not give people things, except tiny, ridiculous lip service things like, um, you know, debt-free college that With is work. going to be, you know, work-study related, yeah. right? That's not a serious proposal in the face of a crisis that is seriously affecting people. Similarly, you cannot say, well, we're not going to do anything about massive environmental racist, uh, racism perpetrated by the government and corporations in Rust Belt states, which have a huge problem with environmental racism and environmental externalities in general, where you know these companies have been pro polluting massively into the water supply and the air supply for years. You cannot look at that and say, no, we don't have to do anything about it. We're going to say we're for the environment or we're for saving the polar bears or whatever, but we're not going to talk, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the general election context about, you know, what we're going to do to remediate these brownfield sites or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can't keep looking at these constituencies and say, oh, they vote Democratic, so we don't have to care about them and they have to come vote for us because, you know, Donald Trump is terrible. That is not how politics works. Mm -hmm. I, I am sympathetic to your point of view that, like, this is a terrible outcome, mm -hmm. it is, that is going to hurt many people. It will, but that's not how politics yeah. works. You do not terrify everyone into voting for you. Eventually, you just start losing voters. Here's a, here's a quick question that I was just thinking of, and you were talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act. Was it really that much of a role, like, play that much of a role in Clinton's general election messaging? So I'm trying to think of how often that came up, and I, but I'm thinking of Clinton well, talking what about was like the general election messaging. Like, there wasn't to, a lot on policy. Yeah, I feel like Clinton might have actually spent more time saying that Sanders was going to repeal the Affordable Care Act when he was talking I about think single that's payer the case. than she did talking about Donald Trump, who legitimately wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. You know, you can complain as much as you want about uh, Bernie Sanders in all of this, but his whole thing from the start was that he wanted us to be able to talk about issues. Because, as correctly panned out, as soon as he was no longer in the race, it, the issues went completely out the window, which is not surprising against someone like Donald Trump. But we attempted to run a national campaign uh, for president uh, completely on issues of character rather than policy mm -hmm. issues. And that, at the end of the day, ultimately doesn't work very well. You cannot... You cannot try to get the whole way through the year or the general election part of the year without talking about those issues. 
because they matter to people. You have to present a, a, a clear vision. And I, 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 you know, there's a lot of people right now who are probably upset with me who are hearing this because they believe that, you know, well, Clinton had this and Clinton had, this. I'm sorry, if you're linking me to something on her website, you have already lost. Like, like no one knows what was on her yeah, website. Cause this, this, this is like one issue that I think that it remind like the the go to her website reminded me of that it was one criticism that was was legitimate to an extent with like Sanders on let's say on racial justice issues he had an excellent page on his website he didn't often exp his he didn't rhetoric talk about it yeah was, wasn't ever as expansive as his own website was and nobody is going to your website and Clinton's website issues page embodied that I remember going to that recently out of out of curiosity and what it took like took a little bit longer than it should to kind of get that. But it was a series of like of, of like of boxes across the page and with seemingly no organization. So it was just like issue, 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 issue. That was kind of jarring that kind of like a like a Pinterest page of issues. <laughs> and none of them immediately stand out to you. But like I'm sure if you go to any single one, that there's something that it's that it's well thought out. It may be imperfect. It may not go far enough. It, it'll be an improvement on the like on the status quo to some extent. But to see it, you're immediately like your eyes glaze over because all you see, all you see, like the only see is just a bunch yeah, of clutter. Only the very most engaged people go to the websites for a presidential candidate to learn about their policy positions, and you cannot you cannot win a presidential election by PowerPoint. Yeah, you cannot do anything by PowerPoint in politics, <laughs> and you know, I just I I feel like I'm getting driven up the wall by this. We're going around in circles on all of this, and it's just there there people are not getting they're not getting this that that people did not know what it was for or what she was for. They didn't know what they were going to be getting with a Clinton presidency, and. And saying we're going to prevent rollbacks, we're going to hold the line, line is board. not a compelling message. And I don't know what issues you're going to hold the line on. I think that the messaging should be that America is already great. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about was like what an astonishing contrast that is to four years ago when they had a one word message to replace the original. Yes, we can. And that one word message was forward. Yeah. Which that's is very simple. That's simple, and it tells you the direction yeah. of things that you're going to attempt to do. But, but, and and uh, arguably, on a lot of issues, second term Obama did move things forward in a way that he did not move things forward in the first term. Some it's things, a mixed some bag. things, it's mixed, a mixed bag. bag. But, but a lot of the stuff that that many of us complain about on the domestic front that were uh, steps backward happened in the first term. Yeah, yeah, like the the the, the, the most of the austerity stuff was. Whatever, like the worst of it yeah. was in the first term, although it continued on to the second term. Um, but the one thing that's interesting is that Clinton's domestic policy platform is actually more progressive than anything Obama offered. She just can't message. She just couldn't message it. Mm. Like it was, it was imperfect, as noted, because of a tendency toward like means-tested liberalism. But it was that like so. But she suffered from one of like issues of credibility, which you can't fully run against character with somebody else if you have trust problems of your own. Because if people don't like either person, eventually it's going to be, it's going to be either a toss-up or they won't, won't vote at all. But she just would rarely talk about in a way that's compelling to like a person at home and comes across clearly. 
what those policies me kind of mean to an individual. Like one thing, I don't think, granted, I don't think anybody really watched these that much, but one thing I think that the, I, the Sanders campaign did well is their like mini docs, the mini doc ads, if you remember those. I didn't see any of those. I don't, that's the thing I, I am relatively engaged in. I don't consume <laughs> any of these things. Like you're like you're expecting somebody who isn't me and doesn't pay that much attention to like. No, you saw the Eric what... Garner ad. No. Oh really? <laughs> no, I don't watch this stuff. Like so much of this stuff is just like endless nonsense that no one like. Why am I? I'm not gonna watch a thing that no okay. one else is gonna see. Yeah. Like because because at that point it, you know that's the only way that I can avoid being inside the like. DC bubble style coverage of any of these things, yeah. right? Is because I know that most people are not seeing Same these days. things. So why would I sit there and be like, oh, this is really going to make the difference in the race when I know that no one else is going to see it. So yeah. I just, you know, all this stuff, it's all prepackaged or whatever. You know, I, I, the first, I think the first presidential election campaign ads that I saw was when I was watching TV during game seven of the world series. That's, I didn't see any ads the entire year. I wasn't watching stuff on TV. I don't and partly, Partly keep in mind that I was, because I was running for office, I was pretty busy most of the year. <laughs> so I wasn't doing a lot of political engagement yeah. other than my own campaigns. But yeah, and, and like, yeah, you can criticize me for not like being that familiar with, say, the policies listed on the Clinton website. But again, it's a, an issue that it wasn't coming up. I mean, you know, he, he would get up there and say in the debates like, oh, she's been there for 30 years and she hasn't done anything. And then she would make make a funny face or whatever Dangerous to complain dog. about it. And yeah, and it's like, well, you can't just make a funny face about it. You have to hit back very hard and and talk about, you know, you know your agenda for creating jobs or whatever. And they don't want to do that either because they're looking at the employment statistics right now and saying, oh, we've achieved full employment. So we shouldn't be talking about jobs anymore, which completely, I mean, stop stop statisticalizing the economy completely mm -hmm. when at a certain point it's it all of it is messaging and perception yeah. i mean i keep coming back to this over and over again none of this stuff actually like it all comes down to perception perception yeah. is the constructed reality in which we live it does not need to be as bad as weimar germany if people think it is as bad as weimar germany for you to have a very nasty reaction from a significant section mm -hmm. of the people it's like you keep seeing these articles like the American people think that violent crime is up, but it's actually not. Well, thanks, Vox, but no one read that article. Yeah, so like nobody, you have you have to actively change the way people think about issues, not just expect the numbers to speak to them. Yes, you have to be willing. Like that's the advantage to populism. I mean, people there's there's a section of the Democratic Party that, for the same reasons that they find all of politics distasteful and don't believe they should have to sell their policies, that everyone should just be like perfectly enlightened rational voters who are aware of all policy, you know, proposals is they're they are afraid of populism because there are bad populists. There are also good populists because you can message your say if you believe that your agenda is good and that yeah. it is good for people, why do you not have a populist to run yeah. those? Because populism is ostensibly giving things that people want and that will benefit yeah. their lives. That's what you're that's what like if your complaint is why do people think that the two parties are the same? They're not the same, and one of them is definitely worse. Okay, if that's true, then you should have candidates who are out there mm -hmm. proudly and repeatedly and daily messaging specifically like, yeah. this is going to benefit your life. This is going to benefit your life in this way. You know, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Here's our proposal. It, it reminds me of my hatred of the the common, really across the spectrum of the Democratic side, the, the, the desire of Democrats to use the line, this should not be a partisan issue. Well, I'm sorry, it is a partisan issue, and you need to ch draw clear lines about, about why that is a partisan issue. Just thinking of in terms of the 
kind of messaging of Donald Trump's character. The one thing that would have at least made that more compelling is you actually connect that directly to policy, like for instance on sexual assault. It's not like like Donald Trump is a serious sexual assaulter, and I think that is that's delegitimizing for being a president. But it's also delegitimizing that he would roll back protections for sexual assault victims. Yeah, and that there there's a tangible there are tangible kind of concrete policy implications of like things that Donald Trump like would roll back Title IX protections. Obviously, he'd have had very horrible judicial nominees and stuff like, but like on these issues, so that it's the horrible. It's not just that Donald Trump insults certain people. It's that the worldview that come that that stems out of would actually lead to horrible policies with har- ten- like concrete and horrible impacts on people's lives. Sorry for banging the table here. That like not only do that, but you need to counter that with like we need to push aggressively in the opposite direction that he is. Right. Well, that was something that I was gonna say because I am as pessimistic as I am about our chances of stopping a lot of this stuff coming down the pipeline. You know, and and I think hopefully like next week we can really get into some of that stuff that I mentioned at the beginning about non-electoral organizing. That's something that I was talking a little bit with Emily about last week, but we need to expand on that for sure. Definitely like unions are going to be facing tremendous threats in the next couple of years um, that could make them extinct. That's a very, very serious challenge that we have to be able to take on. And a lot of union organizing is going to happen completely outside of the party politics space. That being said, within the party politics space. This is what I believe needs to happen. Every Democrat has to be on message every single day with not just opposition to the Trump-Ryan agenda, but also alternative proposals, which is what you were saying, Mm -hmm. right? This has to be not just, this is bad. People complain about gridlock. They may vote to create gridlock by accident, whatever. They don't necessarily understand the like, you know, if I vote for this person in this office, this will create this effect with this other office. But what the American people do not like at this point is people just complaining and saying no about things. Now, granted, did they just elect massive Republican majorities after the Republicans had done that for years? Yes, they did. However, you cannot say that the Republicans did not have some agenda. I mean, that was the Democratic talking point because that's the Democratic talking point ever since Truman, which is to call Republicans do-nothing obstructionists who have no ideas, when in fact, the Congress that he referred to that as passed some of the most sweeping anti-New Deal legislation (laughs) ever, right? Like the Taft-Hartley Act came out of that. Like, they did stuff. They always do stuff. Paul Ryan, a few years ago, he was supposed to be this intellectual savior or whatever proposing these various plans the paul ryan plan the paul ryan budget that's dumb that's not true but he had a proposal there was a counter proposal that was what republicans could use to message you know and so just like it cannot just be no 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 it has to be this is what the democrats would be doing instead if they Mm -hmm. were in office that's what every other country does that's how government works you have shadow governments that say this is a stupid proposal here is what we would be doing instead. Yeah. Now, sometimes they're not good at that either. You get labor government, you know, shadow governments that are saying like, well, the government is proposing an absurd 20% cut to this benefits proposal. Uh, and we're going to say 10% only and no further, ma'am. <laughs> that's, that's not helpful. Yeah. But the only thing that Democrats are going to be able to do on many fronts mm-hmm. over the next two to four years is to provide counter proposals and counter messaging every single day. Yeah. And I think that without providing those alternatives, Americans will just say, well, I don't know. It seems like stuff is finally happening. 
Yeah. Right. Uh, and 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 forward momentum is a is a valued thing in American politics, <laughs> whether or not it is in, in a right, good direction. direction. Yes. Rachel, we're almost out of time here, so I do want to go to you for your closing thoughts on all of this because I know uh, we we know we've been kind of monopolizing some of the time here. <laughs> Um, well, I just want to say it's very reassuring to know that you're not watching all these campaign videos and, and, um, and going to policy websites because I, I don't know, I, I have a full-time job not in politics, so I think it's hard to keep abreast of all these like hyper-focused policy, policy, policy stuff when the average person isn't exposing themselves to this stuff either. So I think it's very easy to get stuck in like an echo chamber of like, Oh yeah, everybody knows Hillary's policy on X when nobody knows it. So I think that's very reassuring. And I think, yeah, definitely we have to be cognizant that it's, it's feelings, nothing more than feelings. So we need to, (laughs) to get a little nineties there. So, um, yeah, I think I think we have to be cognizant of that because we I think we do have a tendency to go hyper rational and I'm saying the word hyper a lot, but I think we tend to dig down so deep that we just we lose focus on what is important to people and what will motivate them to vote or to get out and become an activist or what whatnot. Jonathan, you have sixty seconds to conclude here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could say say many different things in terms of concluding. Um, yeah, no, just, I would just reiterate the one point that I had made before about the need that, like, if Democrats are going to have any chance in 2018 of, like, not hemorrhaging seats in the Senate and, like, gaining stuff in the House and getting governorships, you really do need to be working on expanding the electorate year-round um, and finding ways of actually reaching people. Like, young people are difficult to reach. That is one part. That is going to be one part of the issue with turning out young people. So you need to be actively thinking about that. The Democrats need to be actually thinking about what what went wrong in this election and how you can do how you can do things better in the various facets of that for 2018, so that you can get governorships, you can get state legislative seats, etc. And I and I would agree with your point about the idea of counter messaging, since you're not going to be able to pass decent bills under under a, like Trump. Trump's not going to suddenly decide, oh, I'm going to work with the Senate House Democrats to pass a decent thing against Ryan and McConnell. I mean, all his proposals on anything important are bad too. Like exactly, we didn't. We can talk about that next week. But yeah, like infrastructure by tax credits, that's not an actual yeah. proposal. And that's why I was happy to see that one thing that like uh, Senator Sanders had earlier today was a piece, particularly calling out the fact that like. Trump's Trump's infrastructure plan is garbage. It's just a bunch of tax, like kind of tax giveaways to rich people and large corporations. That's not actually going to help build infrastructure. And here's an alternative plan that proposed last year that we're going to propose again that would actually do this, targeting lots of roads and highways and transit and broadband, et cetera, et cetera. All right, Jonathan, uh, I I think I hope we'll have you back next week because there there is a lot more ground to cover, (laughs) certainly. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, Rachel, thank you uh, again for joining us from Idaho. Thank you for having me, though. That's all the time we have this week. 
Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from ArsenalForDemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at ArsenalForDemocracy.com daily as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.